You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 123, The First Battle of Trenton. Last week, we left General Washington with his army of about 2,400 Continentals, having just crossed the Delaware River. This was less than half the force that he had planned for the overall campaign. Other crossings downriver failed because of the weather. Washington's own force was hours behind schedule, making a dawn attack on Trenton impossible. Washington sent two advance parties to move ahead of the main columns, and set up roadblocks about three miles outside of Trenton. Each party had about 40 men, with orders to keep anyone from entering or leaving Trenton who might warn the enemy of the Continental Army's approach. Captain William Washington, a distant cousin of the general, led one of these advanced parties, assisted by his lieutenant, James Monroe. The future president was a veteran of the New York campaign, but had been a college sophomore a year earlier. As the company blockaded the roads, the dogs from a nearby home alerted and began to bark. The owner, Dr. James Riker, heard his dogs and assumed the men on the road were Hessians. Riker came out to cuss the men and tell them to leave. I always kind of pictured Dr. Riker as being some cranky old man yelling, get off my lawn, but he really was only in his late 30s. Dr. Riker soon discovered that the men on the road were Continental soldiers and not Hessians. As a loyal Whig, Riker then volunteered to join the company for the evening. He figured there would soon be a fight and that his medical services would be needed. Meanwhile, General Washington was trying to get his main force deployed in order to prepare for the morning attack. Because General Ewing's forces had failed to cross at Trenton Falls, Washington had to divide his force into two divisions. Washington sent one division under General Sullivan to move down Delaware River Road and move around the south of Trenton and attack from the southwest. This had been the original mission that was given to General Ewing. Meanwhile, the second division under General Nathaniel Green would move inland and then to the south where they would attack Trenton from the northeast. Washington and the bulk of the artillery under Colonel Knox moved with General Green. Knox had managed to get 18 cannon across the river, much more artillery than a force this size would normally take. Knox had also brought with him extra artillerymen with the hope of capturing several Hessian cannon by surprise and turning them on the enemy. Even with horses, the cannon moved slowly and with great difficulty over the icy roads. Most guns weighed between 1,000 and 2,000 pounds, with much more weight from the ammunition that accompanied them. When the army finally began to move around 4 a.m., the men trudged along slowly. The weather was still a miserable mix of rain and snow, which got even heavier, along with what some described as hurricane-force winds. Walking in such weather was miserable enough, But add to the fact that these men had been up all night, many did not have shoes, and most had well-worn clothes that did not keep out the cold. At least two men would literally freeze to death on the march to Trenton 
before anyone fired a shot. The army marched uphill for several miles before hitting a flatter plain. They then faced Jacob's Creek at the bottom of a 100-foot ravine. The soldiers had to spend hours lowering the cannon into the ravine, then pulling them to the other side and back up the other side of the ravine. Throughout the march, General Washington rode up and down the column, which stretched out for over a mile, urging the men to keep quiet and stay close to their officers. Around 7.30 a.m., the main columns caught up with the advance forces. Despite the efforts to keep the march a secret, dozens of local militiamen turned out to support the Continentals in their attack. Of course, that also meant that local Tories were very much aware of the march and had slipped past the Continental roadblocks to warn the Hessians. Continental pickets soon saw 50 armed men approaching their lines from Trenton. It turned out this was a raiding party that Continental General Adam Stephen had sent out on Christmas Eve. A few days earlier, the Hessians had shot and killed one of Stevens's soldiers on the river. Stephen dispatched this raiding party before he learned of Washington's plans, with instructions to do a hit-and-run on Trenton in revenge for the shooting. The men had attacked earlier that night while Washington's army was still crossing the Delaware River. The detachment remained in the area overnight and was now returning after first light back toward the river. Upon hearing this report, General Washington was livid. Any hope of surprise was now completely gone. The Trenton troops would be on full alert after such an attack. Washington summoned General Stephen and berated him for ruining all of his plans. It was another one of the very few occasions when anyone ever saw the normally imperturbable Washington lose his temper. Washington and Stephen had known each other for decades and did not get along for most of that time. Stephen had been Washington's second-in-command of Virginia militia forces during the French and Indian War. While Washington attempted to develop the manners and behavior of a gentleman, Stephen fell into the stereotype of a backwoods militia officer with his hard-fighting, drinking, and refusal to obey orders. After the French and Indian War, Stephen ran against Washington for the House of Burgesses and lost. He also competed against Washington in Western land speculation. So there was not a lot of love lost between these two men. Now, Stephen, who was a Continental general, had destroyed the element of surprise by allowing this raid. Even if he had ordered the raid before knowing of Washington's plans, his failure to recall the men or even inform General Washington of the raid was inexcusable. Washington now expected to find an alert enemy fully entrenched and awaiting the American attack. With only half the forces he thought he would have, Washington did not even have a considerable numerical advantage over the enemy. Despite all this, Washington could not turn around now. He was going to make this attack regardless of the situation. After regaining his composure, he invited the 50 men to join his column. Despite his anger at General Stephen, the men had only obeyed orders and carried out a brave attack, not knowing about the larger campaign. Washington complimented the men and resumed his advance. Inside Trenton, the Hessian garrison had every reason to anticipate an attack. As I mentioned last week, 
British General Grant had sent a note to the commander, Colonel Johann Rall, that intelligence indicated Washington might attempt an attack on Trenton. Even if Rall ignored that report, on Christmas Eve, two American deserters told Rall that the Continental Army was preparing to march. The next day, as Continentals prepared to cross the Delaware River, a Tory physician came to tell Rall that an attack on Trenton was imminent. Another local farmer also reported the same to Rall. Now, some stories have circulated over the years about how Washington managed to win at Trenton, and one is that the Hessians were drunk or hungover from too much Christmas celebration. There's actually no evidence of significant drunkenness. There's also a story that Colonel Rawl received a note on Christmas night warning him of the attack, but that he was playing cards and simply stuck the note in his pocket without reading it. There's, again, no good contemporary evidence that that story is true either. The truth is that Rawl, a professional officer, was well aware from several reports that there could be an enemy attack. He had kept his soldiers on high alert. The men slept in their uniforms with guns by their sides. They had been called out on high alerts for each of the three days prior. The Hessians were not drunk, but were exhausted from being on constant alert for the enemy. It's also said that Rawl was dismissive of the Americans and did not bother to post proper defenses. It is true that he did not have his soldiers dig proper entrenchments around town. However, it was the middle of winter, with frozen ground, and he had only been in Trenton for less than two weeks. Rawl was also concerned because he wasn't sure where he should dig entrenchments since Americans might be attacking from any direction. Rawl was confident that his professional soldiers could meet the enemy on the field and did not need entrenchments. However, he did not leave himself open to surprise. He had a ring of outposts stationed about a mile from the center of town with reinforced detachments at each outpost. Rawl himself visited those outposts on Christmas Day to ensure there were no problems. He would certainly hear if any of the outposts came under attack and would have time to turn out his men in the event of such an attack. Two things, however, that had been difficulties for Washington actually ended up working in Washington's favor. The terrible winter storm that hit Christmas night, which made the march so difficult and which soaked his soldiers and dampened their powder, also convinced the Hessians that no one would be out in such a storm. For the first time in nearly a week, the officers let their men stay indoors most of the time. They canceled the full pre-dawn daily patrols because there was no way anyone would be able to pass through that storm. Second was the Christmas night attack by Stephen's small raiding party. Those 50 or so Virginians had struck the outpost northwest of town and wounded perhaps a half dozen Hessians before riding off into the night. Rather than put the Hessians on high alert, Rawl simply assumed that the small raid was the big raid that everyone had been warning him about. His men mostly remained indoors, seeking shelter from the high winds, snow, sleet, and freezing rain that would keep any sane person off the roads. Just after 8 a.m., Washington further divided Green's division into three columns. Although it was now well after daylight, the heavy storm kept the Hessians from venturing very far. 
After the Stephen raid the night before, Lieutenant Andreas Witterholt took command of a Hessian guard a few miles outside of town. Even with the reinforcements, the total guard was only about two dozen men. Their purpose was to warn of another raid, not to defend against an all-out attack by a major force. As I said, before dawn, the Hessians usually deployed their patrols to march out and make sure there was no threat. But for the prior few weeks, the Hessians had been on constant alert, looking for raiders who might pick off a few men, not an all-out invasion. Now, sometimes these patrols would have gone all the way down to the ferries at the Delaware River. But, as I said, on the morning of December 26, the storm was so miserable that the patrol only went out a few miles, and not finding anything, they returned to get indoors and warm themselves. The still-falling snow limited the visibility of these outposts and patrols. So the Hessians did not have much warning, as Washington personally led the center column against the Hessian outpost at the Cooper shop. The Americans might have actually captured the outpost, but for the fact that Lieutenant Witterholt happened to step outside and saw the approaching soldiers. The small outpost first suspected the approaching men might be another raiding party. In that case, a few volleys would probably chase off the attackers. So the two sides exchanged fire at long range with no casualties. At that point, though, Witterholt realized that the force in front of him was much larger and that there were two other attacking brigades on his right and left. He ordered his men to retreat in order to avoid being surrounded. The Hessian outpost began a steady retreat back toward town, but keeping up a line of fire as they retreated. Around the same time Washington began his attack north of town, he heard cannon fire coming from the south. General Sullivan's division had reached its objective around the same time. The coordinated two-pronged attack actually worked as planned. The Americans began to push back all the outposts, both on the north and south sides of town. At the same time, American cannon from the Pennsylvania side of the river opened up fire on the town from the west. As far as I can tell, this is the first documented plan I know of where two groups literally synchronized their watches before the attack so that both could begin the attack at the exact same time. Even with this effort, it was a miracle that both divisions got into position at the same time. The Hessian regiments in Trenton turned out in a matter of minutes, forming lines and preparing to return fire. The soldiers poured out of the buildings half-dressed and prepared to meet the enemy. Hessian cannons quickly deployed against the two main roads into town, forcing the attackers off the roads and into the fields next to them. Colonel Raw was still asleep when an aide woke him. He quickly dressed and tried to figure out what was happening. The Americans fired on the town of Trenton as they advanced. Because of the long wet march, though, many of their muskets misfired. But sufficient shots, especially when combined with the artillery fire, which tended to be more reliable in wet conditions, managed to create chaos for the Hessian defenders. Soldiers could not find their officers. Many men simply ran into the streets and began firing, and those not taking shelter were quickly cut down. A few civilians were also killed or wounded as they scrambled for shelter. Some Hessian accounts say they took fire from civilians, 
who took shots at the soldiers from windows. This, to me, seems unlikely since the soldiers almost certainly would have stormed such a house and killed everyone inside. Other accounts say Hessian riflemen took positions in the upper stories of houses to shoot at the enemy, and that to me is more believable. Colonel Rawl received a report that the Americans were on both sides of town, cutting off all avenues of retreat. Now, at the time he received this report, that was not entirely true. The Americans had not yet captured the stone bridge over Assunpink Creek. If Rawl had rallied his men and retreated across the bridge, he would have had a good defensive position. He could have retreated east up a hill where he would have been better able to defend against the American attack. Indeed, the only British soldiers in Trenton were 20 mounted dragoons who turned tail and got out of town as fast as they could across that very bridge. A significant number of Hessian camp followers, that's women and children who were traveling with the army, also fled across the bridge before Sullivan's division could secure it. But even if Rawl had known that the bridge was still open, his instinct was not to retreat. He wanted to charge the American lines and scatter the enemy. Like many other professional soldiers of the day, he believed the undisciplined Americans would flee at any daring counterattack. His experience in New York and New Jersey had confirmed this view. Rawl sent the bulk of his assembled brigade north through an apple orchard with the intent of charging up a hill and into the American center. At the same time, Hessian artillery pushed north up King Street in an attempt to push back the continental advance there. In response to this, Washington deployed several companies to the right of Rawls' advancing forces. If he tried to cross up the hill, his men would be mowed down from two sides. At the same time, Knox's continental artillery continued to fire down King and Queen Streets. Knox's artillery had improved with months of combat experience. Captain Alexander Hamilton, who you may recall had given a really embarrassing performance in his attempt to fire his cannon on the British ships sailing up the Hudson River a few months earlier, now expertly used his guns against the enemy. When a gun carriage broke on one of Knox's guns, he ordered nearby infantry to charge an enemy gun with swords and bayonets. The Hessian artillery had advanced too far without sufficient infantry support. The Continentals charged into enemy fire to capture those two cannons. They then turned the guns around and continued firing on the enemy. The Americans who took part in that charge received several serious wounds. Both Captain Washington and Lieutenant Monroe suffered serious wounds as a result of the charge. Monroe particularly suffered a severed artery in the shoulder. He very likely would have bled to death on the field but for the services of Dr. Riker, who I also mentioned had joined them overnight. Dr. Riker's quick action stopped the bleeding and saved the future president from an untimely death. The Continentals fought with an aggressiveness and speed that surprised the enemy. Perhaps one benefit of the many men who deserted the Continental Army in the weeks prior to battle was that those who did remain were the hardcore and most committed. The Americans fought with a fury, rushing the enemy at every opportunity. The Hessians took dozens of casualties while inflicting very few on the attackers. 
the Hessians fell back again into town as multiple Continental Brigades pressed them on several fronts. Colonel Raw finally considered retreating over the bridge to the south, but by this time it really was too late. The Continentals had secured the bridge, backed up with cannon. As Raw ordered his men to fall back, he took two shots in his side and had to be carried off the field. He would live until evening, when he finally expired after the battle had ended. With the loss of Rawl and several other officers, the two regiments of Hessians who had advanced into the orchard and then began to fall back had decided they had enough. Rawl's second-in-command first tried to find a place to force through the lines and get to the Princeton Road, but after he realized this was not going to work, he ordered his men to lay down their arms and surrender. Many of the Hessian soldiers, disgusted with the idea of surrendering to these rebels, smashed their muskets on the ground and slashed their equipment. This denied its use by the enemy and avoided the indignity of turning over the weapons to the enemy. A few soldiers fled back into town and hid in various buildings to be captured later. Now, there was a third regiment of Hessians, the Neiphausen Regiment, that was still in town after their comrades surrendered. These remaining men attempted to retreat south across the stone bridge. But, as I said, by this time, Sullivan's division had already taken control of the bridge and cut it off as an avenue of retreat. These remaining Hessians then tried to move up the creek to look for a spot where they could ford across it. However, the Americans kept up with them on the other side of the creek, continuing their fire. More Americans came through town, surrounding this last Hessian regiment. The acting commander of this regiment, Major Deckout, suffered a mortal wound and suggested that the regiment surrender. Some of his other officers objected, and Deckout told him they could do whatever they wanted, and he left the regiment and walked back to town to surrender. After a few more minutes of trying to find a place to cross the creek, the final regiment, which found itself surrounded, finally laid down their arms and surrendered to the Americans. The fighting had lasted somewhere between 45 and 90 minutes, accounts on this differ, but the American victory was pretty complete. They had killed or captured most of the combat troops in Trenton. Only 22 Hessians died in the actual battle, with another 83 wounded, but about 900 were captured. They also captured six Hessian field cannon, ammunition, and a wealth of supplies. Next week, a victorious General Washington has to decide what he wants to do next. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. 
Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com slash ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Today I want to thank Mike Hager for stepping up and joining the Robert Morris Circle on Patreon. Mike has actually been a big supporter of the show for many months now at the Privy Council level, but recently joined the Robert Morris Circle, the highest level of Patreon support for this podcast. Thanks, Mike. I really appreciate you helping to make this show possible. I'm recording this episode a few weeks ahead of time. The date this episode releases, November 16th, 2019, I will be down at History Camp Virginia for a presentation on the politics of independence. The other thing that will have happened by then is the announcement of History Camp Philadelphia. We are finally getting History Camp Philadelphia on May 2nd, 2020. The Constitution High School in Old Town Philly, which is a school that focuses on history, has agreed to give us the space to hold history camp over the weekend. This will be a great opportunity for anyone in the area either to give a presentation or just listen to many of those that will be given. The great thing about history camp is that it is open to anyone. Many of us have spent much of our adult lives reading and learning about all different aspects of history. History Camp gives us a chance to share that knowledge with other enthusiasts. History Camp covers all aspects of history, not just the Revolution. I know there will be some really great Revolution topics there, just based on some of the authors who have already expressed an interest in attending. However, I actually plan to present on an interesting topic that's not from the Revolution. My topic will be the Philadelphia Bible Riots of 1844. Should be a really awesome day. One shortcoming of our location, though, is that space is going to be rather limited. So if you do want to go, be sure to order your tickets early. I've started a Facebook page for History Camp Philadelphia, and there should be more information appearing on the historycamp.org webpage later this week. But again, mark your calendars for May 2nd, 2020. So this week, we covered the First Battle of Trenton, which begins fighting in what is sometimes called the Ten Most Crucial Days of the American Revolution. Those are the days from December 25, 1776, when Washington first crosses the Delaware River, through January 3rd, when the Continentals fight the Battle of Princeton. Now, last week, we covered the crossing of the Delaware on the 25th, Today, we cover the Battle of Princeton on the 26th. But don't worry, it's not going to take us 10 episodes to get through all 10 of those days. The next eight days will be covered in a mere three episodes. But the reason those 10 days are really considered so crucial, and why I am devoting so much time to it on the podcast, is because the Continental Army, and the Patriot Movement more generally, was on the verge of dying when those days began on December 25th, and by January 3rd, it had a new lease on life and a real chance of going the distance. 
That is why we give so close attention to those 10 crucial days. For those of you who want an even closer look, I am recommending a book with that same name, 10 Crucial Days, Washington's Vision for Victory Unfolds, by William L. Kidder. As you might guess from the title, the book goes into great detail specifically about that time period, beginning on December 25th and ending on January 3rd. The book is very thorough, covering that short time period with over 300 pages of content, not counting notes and index. It's not as much a narrative a book like the one I recommended last week on a similar topic, David Hackett Fisher's Washington's Crossing. This book, Ten Crucial Days, reads a little bit more like a timeline going into detail about exactly what is happening each day in various theaters. The book itself is relatively new, having just been released last year, 2018. For that reason, it's actually able to take advantage of some of the additional research and information that has come out about the battles since 2004, when the book I recommended last week, Fisher's Washington's Crossing, was published. The author, William Kidder, or Larry to his friends, has written a number of books on New Jersey history. He's a retired history teacher and has been a longtime volunteer at the Howell Living History Farm, which is near Washington's Crossing. I also had the privilege of listening to a lecture of his at my local American Revolution Roundtable a few months ago. My online recommendation this week is a website of the same name, 10crucialdays.org. The site is run by Roger Williams, who is a Patreon supporter of this show at the Privy Council level. His site covers the same critical period as Mr. Kidder's book, from Washington's Crossing on the 25th to the Battle of Princeton on the 3rd. The site has lots of great information about those events and is tied to the many parks and museums in the area. If you ever plan to visit Washington's Crossing, you really should visit 10crucialdays.org as part of planning your visit. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.